1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm your host,
3: Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The annual general meetings of publicly traded companies let shareholders interact with executives. They're often dull affairs of little interest to the general public. But one, held last weekend in Omaha, Nebraska, has become the Woodstock of Capitalism.
1: And most of the staggering number of cattle sales in India still happen the old-fashioned way, at crowded, chaotic markets. But startups are swiftly moving into the business, making it easier and safer for buyers, for sellers, and for the cows.
3: But first... Tomorrow, elections are being held across the United Kingdom. In England, Scotland, and Wales, voters will decide who to elect to local authorities in what's being seen as a referendum on Prime Minister Boris Johnson's rocky premiership but it is the vote in northern ireland that could prove most significant
0: they do not want to be part of the debate about our future in terms of <laughs> this protocol and the way in which um, well i know who was we, part of the debate the last time and i know why we're in this in situation the way in which we have laws imposed
3: last night vote representatives vote. from the five main parties debated ahead of elections to its no parliament
2: the,
0: debate. No,
4: no, no, the no.
3: protocol so a special brexit this deal to prevent the return of a hard border between northern ireland and its southern neighbour ireland Featured heavily during the heated discussion
0: recently, that the protocol alters
5: Article Six of the Acts of Union, which protect our right to trade freely within but the our own country. The question was about that the border, me, the that, border yeah, poll. So just, just th- to that be clear, makes me a second-class citizen in my own
0: country, and that's not so, that is something I am not prepared to accept. So
3: the protocol has proved one of the most divisive political issues since the Good Friday Agreement, the peace deal brought about between those who wanted to see the two countries unified, and those who didn't.
0: It's one big factor in an election that could turn up a historic result. For over a century, pro-British unionist parties in Northern Ireland have held power. Sam McBride writes about Northern Ireland for The Economist and is based in Belfast. But voters here in this election could choose as the biggest party, a party which does not even want Northern Ireland to exist. So put
3: this election in context for us. What is its stake How does it work? Who's voting? What's the contest?
0: Northern Irish politics is highly polarized at the moment. So between 1969 and 1998, there were three decades of violence known as the Troubles. That was fundamentally about whether Northern Ireland should be part of the United Kingdom or part of a a single Irish state getting rid of the Irish land border. That question still lingers many, many years, 24 years now after the Good Friday Agreement. But there are fresh pressures which are straining politics in Belfast those pressures come from Brexit. There are also changing demographics in Northern Ireland. Voters can't just be lumped into one of two groups, unionist or nationalist. That's the way it used to be. And those labels were very much, in some ways, proxies for a religious label of Protestant or Catholic. That is changing quite rapidly. Non-aligned voters are now a structurally significant segment there is a sense of weariness among a lot of these people. They want something different. They want better public services. Whatever happens, they are open to good arguments, either for the union or for Irish unification. And that really complicates matters because this political system from the Good Friday Agreement was really only designed for two big tribes.
3: And you say a non-unionist vote at least looks possible. Why
0: is that? Why now? Sinn Féin really for decades was the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. It's not guaranteed that it's going to win on Thursday, but there is reason for significant expectation that will happen. There are three different polling companies which have been polling in this campaign. They all agree that Sinn Féin is ahead. The only argument is over how far ahead they are. And the same polls that have Sinn Féin on course for victory show that it's not because they are storming ahead, it's actually because they're losing support, but losing support at a slower rate than the main unionist party, the Democratic Unionist Party or the DUP. It has held power in Northern Ireland for 19 years. It has had a very significant influence on the Brexit situation in London, but it is now in deep decline in Northern Ireland. And so Sinn Féin has had a lot going for it in recent years. It's had a very unpopular Brexit, which Northern Ireland voted against. It's had years of unionist incompetence and a prime minister in Boris Johnson, who really manages to unite voters of all stripes in Northern Ireland in their dislike of him. He is very unpopular in this part of the UK.
3: And so how meaningful do you think a Sinn Féin victory could be in terms of actually holding a referendum toward
0: reunification? Well, it would really be much more symbolic than substantive, at least in the immediate term. There would be undoubted symbolism to having the first Catholic as first minister or prime minister of Northern Ireland. That has never happened in over 100 years of Northern Ireland's existence. It would also be the first nationalist, the first Republican. This would be a moment of very great symbolic significance. Northern Ireland was constructed as a state that was meant to have an inbuilt unionist majority, an inbuilt Protestant majority, Its forefathers could not have conceived the idea that an Irish Republican, somebody who came from a party which for for decades really was the mouthpiece of the IRA, which defended terrorist atrocities, that they would be the biggest party in Northern Ireland. But that's only part of the story. Sinn Féin could win this election with as little as 20% of the vote. It's a very fragmented political landscape, and it could win this election by losing seats. So you've got a situation here where it's hard, I think, for Sinn Féin, if they do win, to make the argument to the British government, there must be a plebiscite on Irish unity.
3: And so if not reunification, how could a Sinn Féin victory change things?
0: The first practical issue here would be how the DUP responds if Sinn Féin win. Under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, either of those two main parties can veto, really, an administration being formed, and the DUP has refused to say whether it would participate in government if Sinn Féin wins. Jim Wells, who is a former DUP minister who left the party during this campaign, has said publicly that he, that the party should refuse to share power with Sinn Féin if that meant that Sinn Féin was going to get the post of first minister. His logic for that is that he thinks that would increase Sinn Féin's chances of arguing for Irish unity. I think actually many people looking at this will say that such a decision would not just be on Democratic, it would also almost certainly boost Republican support.
3: And Sam, you mentioned Boris Johnson. What about Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol? How are those playing into the election?
0: The Northern Ireland Protocol basically keeps Northern Ireland in the European Union's single market for goods and in its customs union. That means that Northern Ireland has to follow lots of EU rules, which no longer apply in the rest of the UK since Brexit. It also means that there are checks on many of the goods that cross the Irish Sea from Britain into Northern Ireland. So really, it has avoided a harder Irish land border. But in doing so, it has created an Irish sea border within the United Kingdom And there is a situation now where lots of unionists feel that not only is this causing practical difficulties for businesses, for consumer choice, but much more significant to them than that. This is causing them to feel that the bonds which tie them to the rest of the United Kingdom are starting to be loosened and that unsettles them. They were already feeling somewhat nervous before this. Now they feel really deep on ease at their situation. There is going to be a vote in the Stormont Assembly on whether to keep or get rid of the Sea Border in 2024. And that is going to be decided probably by the people who are elected in this election.
3: And so, Sam, you set out a picture of a fractured political landscape, changing demographics and the possibility of nobody being able to take power. Do you worry this leaves the door open for a return to militancy?
0: I think that few people in Northern Ireland believe that the violence of the Troubles, a widespread and very well-funded and very well-armed terrorist campaign by multiple paramilitary organizations is likely to return at all in the foreseeable future. But even lower-level rioting, bomb threats, the sort of thing that we have seen over the last year— can be deeply destabilizing. And I think that crucially, they can undermine the benefits of the protocol for the businesses who have a unique foot in both the UK and the European Union markets, thanks to the protocol. And so if there is uncertainty about the future of the protocol, as there is, that's bad enough. But if Belfast is burning, if that's what international news organizations are reporting, that is not the sort of image which is likely to attract international investment. I think there is a belief in the DUP that they are behind in this election. They're concerned about that. Still, they say privately, believing that they can make up that grind on Sinn Féin. But I think that the Oppo's have been pretty consistent that Sinn Féin are going to be ahead unless something dramatic happens in the last 48 hours or so. But this could still be closer than those polls imply. There is the possibility here that Sinn Féin could win the popular vote, but not the most seats in Stormont.
3: All right, Sam, thanks so much for your time today. No problem at all. Thanks, John.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: I'm standing right now in the Expo Hall of the Berkshire Hathaway Annual General Meeting. Now, every publicly traded company has an annual general meeting, but this one is the Woodstock of capitalism. It's the Finance Coachella It's unlike any other company's annual general meeting, but Berkshire Hathaway isn't like any other company. It began as a textile mill founded in Rhode Island in 1839. In 1965, a group led by a then young investor named Warren Buffett took it over. Since then, it's become Buffett's holding company with shares in companies like Dairy Queen, Apple, and Coca-Cola, among many others. The last time this event was held in person was in 2019, before the pandemic. 40,000 people came, and a huge number of people attended this year. They flocked to Omaha, Nebraska, where Warren Buffett was born 91 years ago. And they came from all over the world. From Singapore.
5: It's kind of like a pilgrimage for every investor. This is kind of like our Mecca.
3: (laughs) Mexico City.
2: I don't think there's any shareholder meeting anywhere in the history of the world where you can bring this kind of attention and, and people to come together as shareholders.
3: And having dreamt about it growing up in Kenya. I wanted to meet Warren Buffett forever it's 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 legendary right but it also attracts finance professionals including one whom i've known since those halcyon days before i went bald
2: he had really big (laughs) big
3: hair the froiest jufro jufro ever (laughs) seen that one could have i
2: mean you know my
3: high school friend jeff graham runs a hedge fund called bandera capital he's been coming to these meetings for two decades And the night beforehand, we caught up over a beer.
2: Well, I mean, the first time that I came here, I came as a student. And this was like the ultimate, you know, master class in finance. And then as my life progressed, I came here when I was a young investment analyst at a hedge fund. You would learn about, you know, the investment process and value investing. And then I came here when I was a young portfolio manager of my own hedge fund. And now that I'm kind of older, I'm not really out to, like, promote my business, like, I'm really here to to see old friends. It's just like a little bit
3: of a reunion. One such friend is Eddie Ramsden, who runs Cabern Capital.
4: People are trying to get some sort of reassurance, coming to touch this touchstone of how to think about value and business and how you conduct yourself. In a lot of cases, they're not really investing in a style that is anything like the style that Buffett invests with or have ever invested with or even would approve of or think was smart. And yet, nevertheless, they still feel this this benefit coming to kind of almost like ground themselves.
3: You're making something something almost religious.
4: I mean, there there is a huge cultish aspect to the whole thing.
3: And among everyone, finance professionals and ordinary investors alike, there's just a huge amount of respect on display for Warren Buffett and his kind of capitalism. We bought stock just so we could come. Are you an investment professional by training? I'm a farmer that raised (laughs) hogs and cattle. So what is it as a farmer that drew you to Warren and to to Berkshire specifically, as opposed to other companies? His his principles, he just
0: is... Honest up front, and he wants his stock to do well for us as stockholders.
3: Berkshire Hathaway's A shares have never split. That has given them the most expensive share price of any company. They currently trade at just under half a million dollars per share. But Berkshire also offers B shares for around $300. And owners of both shares, both A and B shares, get invited to the meeting. When they're there, they stand in the same lines, and they wear the same badge and the same lanyard. It just says shareholder they're all investors in one of the most successful companies in the history of capitalism.
4: I've been coming somewhere around, regularly around 30 years. What Warren and Charlie have done is beyond amazing. And so to be able to be here, hear them speak, hear the questions asked, and see the energy, can't be beat.
3: And unlike a lot of finance, it's tangible. Outside the 18,000-seat arena where Warren Buffett and his longtime lieutenant Charlie Munger discussed their company's performance, is a huge expo hall. A lot of the companies that Berkshire Hathaway has invested in have their own stalls. There are shoes, clothes, ice cream, work gloves, and other things that people can touch and buy.
0: I'm from Omaha. This is a wonderful place to shop. I bought my Dairy Queen bar. We bought
2: some C's candy and some t-shirts.
4: As much as I could find that had Charlie and Warren's name on it and said 2022 annual meeting.
3: People in Omaha especially like Buffett, because he never left. He lives in the same house he bought in 1957, and he eats at the same restaurant he's been going to for decades.
2: My name's Kristen, and I'm one of the managers here. We're at Garot's Steakhouse.
3: Garot's is a modest steakhouse that becomes a pilgrimage site during the annual general meeting weekend. It's sizable, but not immense. And while the food is really pretty good, the restaurant isn't especially fancy.
2: Everybody comes out of the woodwork to dine at uh, Warren Buffett's favorite steakhouse.
3: And it's not just diners filling the restaurant. There are also two life-size cutouts of Buffett himself, in case anyone wants to get their picture taken with him. How often does he eat here?
2: <laughs> um, You know what? I think lately he's been kind of slowing down a bit. Usually he comes in about every month. We're, we're an old-school Italian steakhouse. We're not like um, the upper-echelon like fine-dining steakhouses that charge an arm and a leg for their like bone-in plus a la carte. Yeah, he likes us for a good value
3: a value steakhouse for the world's most famous value investor, seems about right. In the meeting itself, Buffett and Charlie Munger answered questions from shareholders as they do every year. It was streamed live on CNBC, the pair explaining what investments they've made and why, deriding Bitcoin and high-frequency trading.
1: Now, if you told me you owned all of the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for $25... I wouldn't take it because what would I do with it? I have to sell it back to you one way or another.
3: I mean, maybe... I- they revealed the company's revenue and earnings per share were both down year on year, but exceeded analysts' expectations. What's interesting, though, is that while Buffett and Munger discussing results and answering questions was the weekend's raison d'etre, a lot of shareholders seemed relatively uninterested. There was a constant stream of people leaving their seats to mill around on the expo floor, which I suppose is to be expected over the course of nine hours.
1: I mean, so if I'm trying to get rid of it... You know, people will say, well, you know, why should I buy some Bitcoin from you? <laughs> I mean, why don't you call it Buffett coin? You know, make your own or something. What? Do something. But uh,
3: I'm not going to give you anything for it. And you'd be right, incidentally. Buffett and Munger show remarkable stamina. Buffett is 91 and Munger is 98. But nothing lasts forever. Back at the house where Jeff and Eddie are staying, they were getting ready for their annual party. But before the guests arrived and the networking began, they reflected on the day.
2: Like we all know about like how universal the lessons of Buffett are but everyone in this business like knows he's a singularity and we all know that you can't really replicate what he's done in finance and in investing and so we're really all here to celebrate and we're kind of like hanging on by this thread because we know that when Buffett is gone there will not be a replacement so it's a it's a fantastic event and we know that It has a finite number of years left.
4: Every year it goes through your mind that this could be the last year and you reflect a little bit on this phenomenon, this thing that's happened and doesn't happen anywhere else and I don't think will happen anywhere else. You know, the idea that tens of thousands of people are travelling from all over the world and all over America to again and again, year after year... To sit in an arena and listen to two old men answer questions for five hours or six hours, simply to hear what they have to say on, on the subject matter, is an extraordinary thing.
3: But it wasn't all just seized candy and steaks. Berkshire's annual general meeting is also about telling shareholders what the company's been up to. And this year, some of those shareholders, they weren't too happy. To find out why, you can listen to our sister show, Money Talks, out today. Find it wherever fine podcasts trade at fair market value.
1: For millennia, humans have been trading, bartering, and selling cattle— But in India, this ancient practice is getting a 21st century makeover.
5: Until recently, Indian farmers would have to go to in-person livestock fairs, where they would find uh, cattle, they would buy them, and these fairs could be far away from their homes and their farms, and quite chaotic.
1: Abhishek Ashok Kumar writes for The Economist.
5: But in the past few years, there have been a few startups that have started offering modern online cattle trading platforms through which farmers can now buy and sell cows or other livestock from the comfort of their homes. It's a high-tech solution to a very old market, and these online markets are gaining popularity in India.
1: So why is that? Why are there all these startups to, to deal with this issue?
5: Well, it largely comes down to the size of the dairy market. There are some 75 million dairy farmers in India that is home to some 200 million cows and 100 million buffaloes. And the dairy industry itself is worth a staggering $174 billion. India produces a fifth of the world's milk. So many startups have emerged in the last few years, and they are enticed by the prospect of making juicy margins from what has up until now been a highly fragmented market. And these outfits, they have their online platforms for buying and selling cattle, and they make money by charging fees on online vet appointments or peddling cattle loans and the like. These come at a freemium model, much like a Spotify or some other services where you don't pay for the basic marketplace experience, but then you pay a premium on some additional ones. One of these platforms is named Animal, uh, which is spelled with two L's. It claims to have made one million sales since it was set up back in 2019. It has received some $23 million in investment from the likes of Secure Capital, among others.
1: So it's working out for these startups, and, and I guess it makes things that little bit easier for the farmers.
5: Yes, that's right, Jason. One of them told me that the reason why he founded his outfit was to democratize cattle sales. And up until now, there's usually been a middleman involved in such transactions, something that these platforms make unnecessary to rely on. And uh, it becomes that much more efficient. Uh, One dairy farmer that I spoke with, he recently bought a cow on Animal. He bought it for 45,000 rupees or $590 from somebody who lived just 20 kilometers away. And this farmer reckons that he saved some uh, ten thousand rupees, which would have gone to a middleman or a broker. So
1: that's the the main benefit. Then is is cutting out that broker.
5: Yes, that's a start, but there is much more to that. You know, livestock fairs, uh, where most animals are still bought and sold, they can be a quite fiddly, expensive, chaotic. Where you know farmers have to shell out entry fees to register their cattle they live a little far away from these fairs. So they have to pay the laborers to load and unload the animals. Then you've got to pay the transportation charges to go to and fro. And sometimes uh, cattle thieves operate at these fairs. There are pickpockets and for those selling, making a sales pitch to every prospective customer, it it takes a toll in the heat. Even the buyers don't have uh, time uh, to chew the cud and, and they have to make quick decisions because it's quite crowded. So it's far more convenient for them to do this over an app than at a fair. Finally, there's also quite a bit of fraud at these fairs. Some traders inject their animals with steroids. Horns are often polished as if uh, the cows have just been to a beauty parlor. Also, one of the dairy farmers that I was speaking with, uh, he said that it's like searching for a spouse in arranged marriage. You, you've got to be careful and not just go by the looks.
1: But in a sense, it, it seems uh, advertising the, these cattle on an online platform might make it even more rife for fraud. All you've got is pictures.
5: Yes, it can't all be online. There is a lot of offline interventions. So what these platforms have figured out is we need somebody like a veterinarian to go through a long checklist to actually identify if the cow that is being peddled on the site is the same as the buyer is buying on the ground. Animal requires sellers to upload videos and pictures of their cattle and provide details of not just the breed or age, but also past pregnancies, how much milk they provide, so on and so forth. So there is a lot of back-and-forth from a back-end team, which then calls up the sellers to weed out any listings with pictures that uh, may have been taken from the internet. Uh, These are also removed swiftly. Apparently, a close-up of the cow's udders is very important, and as are the comments by farmers about the animal's temperament. Uh, I watched a video of one farmer getting his cow to run around as if it was a show pony. Now, these things uh, happen in the offline world, and these are exactly the things that they do when they try to sell their cows. It's not a new sales pitch, but uh, it's now easier and cheaper to make.
1: Thanks for chewing the cud with us, Abhishek.
5: (laughs) Thank you. My pleasure.